Amen, amen. Hey, Harvest, before you sit down, I would like for you just to remember what's just been happening here. We are in a very, what would be called a doxological place, doxology. It's, it's glory. Ology is the study of the, the giving of, the seeing of God's glory. That's what's been taking place here. This is a doxology place. And don't forget that because here in a little bit, we're gonna go to Revelation chapter 11 and we're gonna find and we're gonna see that heaven is a doxology place as well. Today's kind of a little bit of a short passage pause to take a breath and to breathe in the greatness and the grandness and the glory, the doxology of our Lord. Don't forget what we're doing right now. Lord, I pray as we open your word, you would just show us more of you. What an amazing thing that you have given us your words that not only tell us about various things and even who you are, but literally like today, takes us into the place of heaven for us to be observers, to watch what's going on around and before you. And it tells us who you are. So Lord, we take a breath on this 4th of July weekend and we sit here for some time in your glory for the purpose of us responding to it. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Hey, grab a seat and a turn to your copy of God's word in Revelation chapter 11. Um, that's where we're gonna be here. Well, this is the time of season of the year where a lot of people are on vacation right now and uh, it's 4th of July weekend. And let me just kind of maybe try and use that to transition a little bit on where we're going today. Uh, vacations. If I were to sit down with you, if you're preparing and planning your vacation, and I were to sit down and to say over a cup of coffee and just say, hey, uh, tell me about your preparation, what you're going to be doing on your vacation. And, and if all of a sudden, oh, in fact, I'd love to. And if you pulled out like a piece of paper in your pocket or your purse and you just said, here, here's our schedule Monday through Friday of what we're doing on vacation, there you go. I have to say, I would be kind of like, really? You're just giving me a timeline? It's more than that. I'm not just looking for what you're doing. I kind of want to know like what's happening and what are you going to look forward to and all that. And it's 4th of July weekend. And if I were to say to you, or if someone were to say who didn't know a whole lot about uh, what 4th of July means here in America, if someone like that was to say, hey, uh, what is 4th of July about? And uh, what if then I gave them this response? I said, well, here's what 4th of July is about. On Friday, June 7th, 1776, Congress, a meeting in Philadelphia, received uh, Richard Henry Lee's resolution urging Congress to declare independence. And then on Tuesday... June 11th, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Ben Franklin, Roger Sherman, and Robert Livingston appointed a committee to draft a declaration of independence. And then on Friday, June 28th, a copy of the committee's first draft of the declaration is read in Congress. Then from Monday through Thursday of that week, they debated and they revised the document during that week. And then on Tuesday of that week, that included actually Congress declared independence as the British fleet and army was arriving in New York. And on Thursday, July 4th, with, by the way, it was a bright, sunny, and cool morning in Philadelphia, literally. 
uh, adopted the Declaration of Independence, that's what you need to know. I have to say, I would walk away going like, that leaves me wanting. Like, don't just give me a timeline. Tell me what it means. Tell me what the results of it is. Tell me where this is all going and how this came to be and the DNA and the fabric of who you are as a people, right? Isn't that where you'd want to really, you're running? No. Here's the deal. Far too many people end up going to the book of Revelation and saying, give me a timeline. I just want a timeline. Just tell me what God's doing. And friends... As we are going through the book of Revelation, I am becoming more and more convinced that the book of Revelation is not first and foremost about a timeline. The book of Revelation is first and foremost about the doxology giving to the Lord. In other words, it tells us about who he is and various things about who he is so that we would respond as people being blown away by who God is, what he is up to, what he is doing, and that it would literally change the fabric of how we do life, whether we live in the end times during our lifetime or not. The book of Revelation is is a doxology book, not a calendar book. So where we're going today in chapter 11, uh, verses 15 through 19, are you there? Okay, we're going there, and we are going to see in this, uh, I think the principle of what's going on in heaven is that when we are anchored vertically, God gets the glory he deserves, and we are then blessed back by it. Watch this on what takes place Revelation chapter 11, here we go. We're gonna start in verse 14. Uh, The second woe has passed. Now, if you remember the the prior woes, uh, there was one woe prior to this, and I believe in chapter nine, verse 13, we're in the trumpet section. There have been seals, seals on the broken scroll. There have now been trumpets. We have now heard the first six trumpets have been blown. We are now about to hear the seventh trumpet, which is the third woe. If you're a visitor, uh, woe, I hope you catch up on that. Uh, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The third woe is the seventh trumpet. Here we go, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. Stop. Here's the deal. We're moving through the book of Revelation, and we now get to the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet is blown, and you know what? We're not going to really talk about any of the results of the seventh trumpet and what it's blown other than how heaven responds with it. So if you're coming today and you're like, man, I can't wait for like, what's the next event that's going to be going on? Pause. Watch what happens here. The seventh trumpet is blown. Another roar. Uh, We will be catching up on that more and all that that means here in this coming uh, weeks ahead. Another roar of the lion like lamb. Uh, The seventh angel blew his trumpets, the first six chapters, eight and nine. Then in 10 through 11, uh, uh, the apostle John is re-encouraged and reconfirmed. Remember that? A mighty angel tells John to eat the little scroll, and John eats it, kind of take it in to pour it out. And then he's to measure the temple area. We have the two witnesses, uh, God's work and protection and God's plan. 
Um, Now we're in verse 15, the seventh trumpet is blown. By the way, this whole series is called the the revealing of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ revealed. You, You may look at this and you go, where's Jesus Christ in this? Jesus Christ is behind the blowing of the trumpet. Remember, as we've been talking so far through this whole thing, uh, what's happened is, is the Lord was the one, chapter five, uh, Jesus Christ was the one, the lion-like lamb who came, took the scroll out of the Father's hand, the Father who was sitting on the throne, took the scroll out of the Father's hand. All of heaven declares the glory of God in all that. We're gonna talk about that here in a little bit. But he takes the scroll out and he begins to pop the seven seals. Pop, seal opens. He is the only one that is able able to open the seals and seals and to enact the things that are coming out of those seals. And so the Lord is doing that. And then we saw earlier, I believe in a chapter nine, uh, eight and nine, when then the, tr- the angels are said, told to get ready to blow your trumpets. Seven angels are told to get ready to blow their seven trumpets. And it's kind of like that thing. Remember when I was like, they're getting ready to blow and what, why don't they just blow anytime they want? Because they don't blow their trumpet until the Lord tells them to blow their trumpet. And here all of a sudden what happens in this is then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. What is known behind this and what is so cool is this. The lion-like lamb, the resurrected, magnified Jesus Christ, the one that in Revelation chapter one, John, who had known Christ incarnate for three years on earth, falls on his face to the ground thinking he's going to die That is the one who is telling the angel, blow your trumpet. So everything that we are reading here in this short little statement of the seventh angel blew his trumpet, oh, don't, pun here, don't blow by it. You have to understand what's happening here. The lion-like lamb, the one that we've been seeing through the book so far has told the angel to blow the trumpet and he does. The Lord has just acted. That's my point. The Lord has just acted. When the Lord acts, what should then take place? Watch. Watch what happens. There is a response here. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, let's pause there. Let's get the scene set. The scene, we're where? Where are we? We're in heaven and there are voices. It's interesting. We're not told who the voices are. And what so often is happening through the book of Revelation, we are told many, many times who the voices and who the various declarations and, and, and chorus moments are. This time we're not. I think uh, basically the focus is on the words that are to be said, not so much exactly who is saying them. And so there are voices. Uh, there are voices that are not just like going, ah just making random noise. They're voices that are saying something. They are speaking words. And notice uh, in the expression of vocalization of thought, which is speaking, it is a loud speaking. In fact, in the Greek, it's it's, it's mega. It's mega voices. Uh, Mega voices, and they're loud, and 
Uh, by the way, the term, it's interesting, the term loud voices occurs 19 times in Revelation. Uh, it tells you there's a lot of noise in heaven. There's a lot of uh, talk in heaven. There's a lot of chorus in heaven. But I want to note here what's going on here, as we'll see, is two key words right at the moment. Note the corporateness. We don't know exactly who the voices are, and we don't know how many they are, uh, but I don't think that uh, the flow of this, as we'll see, is that it's like there's two voices. I mean, two voices aren't that loud. And we've generally seen in the throne room of heaven through the book of Revelation that oftentimes when things get loud, that means there's a lot of beings involved in it. So likely there's a lot of beings that are involved in this and there's a, there's a whole corporate thing that's going on. They are saying this together. Pause, corporateness. Corporate doxology, corporate glory giving, corporate worship. I just want for you to note in here that what they're not doing is this. Uh, these beings up there are not going of, hey, you give worship to Jesus doing your thing and I'll give worship to Jesus doing my thing and you give worship to Jesus doing your thing and we're all kind of doing our own little thing here but we all happen to be in the same place. That's not what's happening here. That is not corporateness. What's happening here is actually what the statement is about to be said is coming from all of these voices together. There is a togetherness. And, and I'm putting out on the table a couple words here because I think as we're moving through the book of Revelation, seeing what's happening in heaven, some things are standing out on the table. And one of them, one of the things that happens in heaven is God's being corporately give glory. You know, we live in a, in, a, in a day and age and in a culture here in a, uh, this beloved country. In fact, one of our greatest strengths of a, as a country that even goes back in our entire history is our individualism. And, uh, and yet, the greatest strength can be greatest weakness. And today, one of the things in the American church that I and many others think is part of a problem is we kind of function like, you do your Jesus thing, I'll do my Jesus thing, and you do your Jesus thing, and we'll all do our Jesus thing all independently. That's not much corporateness. Instead, I think what we see in Scripture, especially in heaven, is, is God's being, beings love to corporately, I'll just say, do what we were doing together this morning. Together. It's not, oh crud, I have to, because like that's what Nick put in the order of the service. It's just like, no, we get to together. There's a corporateness in heaven all the time we see things going on. I'm also going to bring another word with that, appropriateness. Appropriateness. I've just noticed here as we've been seeing through these various times kind of in the throne room of heaven, in heaven, we, we see these differing responses to the acts of God. In other words, the doxology responses do not always look the same. Sometimes we see few together. Sometimes we've seen it where it's actually been a time of, of silence, where everyone went silent for 30 minutes in heaven before the seventh seal was opened. Remember that? 
Sometimes it's been the four living beings around the throne. And then other times it's been the four living beings with the 24 presbyteros who fall their knees, place their Stephanus crowns, victory crowns before the Lord. And then other times, as we've seen in chapter four and five, it keeps building. By the time we get to the end of chapter five, it talks about myriads and myriads and then goes beyond that. All of everything and everyone is giving glory to the lion like lamb. It's not the same every time. It's not. Appropriateness. There are times when it looks differently. We'll touch on some more of that here in just a second, so I'll keep moving. I just note, uh, the doxology, the worship of the Lord is not the same every time before the throne. But I will say this, that we definitely see that when glory is being given, it's all in all together. Verse 15, then the angel Seventh angel blew his trumpet. There was loud voices in heaven saying, and here's what they say. By the way, let's read this looking for the depth of theology in this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Let's talk about this here for a few. The Lord acts. He does something. He has the seventh angel blow the trumpet, and then there's a response out of that. Uh, God's beings do something. They respond back to that in a, in a doxology way, but it's really interesting here. I don't think they're singing a song. I think here they're laying out theological truth. Uh, something has been done, and, and they're responding with great truth. But Doug, they're, they're angels. They're, they're heavenly beings. They know more than we do. I mean, they had inside information on what was going on. Well, yes, but they were not also known of everything. But let me say this. So are we. Friends, part of the reason that we are going through the book of Revelation is to be able to equip us to be able to understand what our Lord and Savior, what the Godhead has in plan for things so that as life moves along, ultimately we can respond theologically strong. By the way, just some things that have been happening in the last week or two, you know, in our country and it's been interesting uh, to watch how people respond, and it's been interesting sometimes to watch how Christians respond, like they're shocked, they're stunned. They're like, what's happening? Everything's out of control. That's bad theology. That's just outright bad theology. The Lord is in full control all the time. There is never a moment, never a decision, never anything that is not in the Lord's hands. Well, Doug, can we talk about that? No. Um, <laughs> not right now. But I want to reassure you of this, that one of the things I trust that we're going to be learning out of the book of Revelation is that times we live in a sin-cursed, broken world, and crazy things are going to take place, but know this, he is on the throne, and we are to respond with strong theology to that. And as that's what we're seeing here in heaven. Well, a couple things let me note about their response. Number one, I want to note the verb has become. 
there's actually uh, theologically quite a bit of debate about this verb. Some uh, good theologians think that actually what uh, these verbs here as we go through the text is talking about, it's like it's now happened. It, the kingdom of God has now come about. That the, the verb is giving the idea that when the seventh trumpet is blown, the ex- eschaton, the end has come now and we are now moving into the stages of the eternal state. Uh, some good theologians uh, have that view. Uh, some have the view um, that I, I, I would have, I would embrace on this as I've studied this through this week, that, that actually what's going on here is that this passage is filled with, okay, Greek grammar class, just for a second, with a proleptic verb, okay, proleptic verb, everybody together, it's a what verb? It's a proleptic verb. Proleptic verb means that, in other words, it's anticipating the action, that, you know, it's being said as though it's done knowing it's soon to come. I actually think the statements that are being made here is what is going to be coming out after the end of the contents of the seventh trumpet here. Some good different people have some different views on that, and that's okay. Um, But I just want to let you know where I'm coming from. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Let me say this. One, it uses a singular for the kingdom of the world. That's really interesting. Because there are only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, theologically, and there's the kingdom of Satan. And all the kingdoms that are not in the kingdom of God are of the kingdom of Satan. And you need to understand this because we're going to be seeing this. Much of this text is laying out for what's soon to be coming. There are only two kingdoms. Only two. And the kingdom of God uh, has become, or the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. In some ways that happened at the cross, we could say. Victory was made. But yet, coming to fruition, it, it will come about. It's interesting, the statement, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Uh, so does the, the revelation have a, a, a binary view of God or a, a Trinitarian view of God? No, it has a Trinitarian view. I'll just tell you other places it talks about the Spirit of God here. And this one is focusing. When the Father rules, where the Father rules, the Son rules as well. The kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world is singular. Uh, The Lord and his Christ. And by the way, uh, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Now, within you right now, there should be an aspect. Within your soul, you should just be booyah. Because know this, when the Lord moves things into his time of eternal kingdom, full reign, know this, it's never going back to what we are in now. It's never going back there. When he takes full, complete rule, he is in sovereign, full, complete rule now, if you will, but in the eternal movement of all things, everything fully taken care of, it will never go back. Yay! (laughs) Okay? Uh, Forever and ever. Verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped and, if you will, doxologied God, saying, let's pause there, a couple things about this. Number one, I want for you to notice their posture. Um, It's intrigued me now uh, 
Too many times, Revelation tells us about the postures of the beings in heaven. Who cares? I mean, who cares if they're on their face, sitting on a throne, if they're walking, if they're talking? I mean, who cares? Well, apparently, John does, and it tells us about what it looks like to give glory to God. They fell on their faces. Uh, I put it this way. Appropriate worship includes the physical. Appropriate worship includes physicality. I do hope you know that our bodies are not uh, uh, wicked things in an, uh, you know, as created. I mean, we were created by God and all th- it was good. And here we see the physicality, if you will, of the beings in heaven in various positions. In fact, John chapter, uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 1, John sees the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He falls his face to the ground and it says as though he's going to die. By the way, physicality always is driven by truth. Why did John fall to the ground? John physically fell to the ground because he was before the holy, resurrected, magnified, glorified Jesus Christ and he is not worthy. And the physicality was a response of the truth. We, we later, we go to John, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Revelation chapter five. Uh, John is weeping Remember, that, that's right where it's, uh, the father has the scroll in his hand and the question is, who's worthy to open the scroll? And they do the amazing race uh, you know, around the universe and it's, it's like, nobody, nobody's worthy. And John is weeping. John, we don't see him weeping in chapter one, but here we see him weeping here. Why? Because John in his truth and his theology knew that if there's no one worthy to open the scroll, How is God going to enact his plans for what's ahead? And he weeps over the theology that he's thinking. We go into uh, chapter 4. There are the 24 presbyteros, like here. uh, The 24 presbyteros, uh, the 24 elders around the throne, they take their crowns off and they fall before the Lord. Here we find them going face down. Question. What is the theology? What is your theology of your physical posture in worship? I'm not asking your personality. I'm not asking uh, uh, what you grew up with. I'm asking what is your biblical theology of the physicality of you in worship? Have you ever thought about that? Because it's really interesting. God talks about it a lot. And it's not always the same. Just a note. I love my two kids. And I'm speaking symbolically here. I'm talking about my first service kids and my second service kids. I I love them both. And um, in this whole arena... Um, both are unique 
And in fact, when we have people come and speak, I literally, and they, they know, so tell me about first service and second service. What are the dynamics and what are the differences? And I do the same thing if I speak somewhere else and there's multiple, sure, I ask them about that just so that I'm aware of that. Uh, let, me, let me tell you second service child. Second service child is just a delight. I, I, I love second service child. Second service child is thinkers. Their second service child is, is more like the 30 minutes of silence in heaven. <laughs> and, and I love second service child, but I will also say this, you know, second service child could learn a little bit from first service child. <laughs> I, I just want to say this. I'm not trying to move you anywhere other than ask you this question. Seriously, what is your theology of your physicality in the worship? And I'm even talking about right now. And I want to just say this. Second service child, I love you. But I do want to let you know that I tell, like I did Josh last week, second service is very quiet and they don't give a whole lot of feedback back. Just know that. And I know that. And I love you. But you know what? In heaven, it wasn't always like that. And I invite you to love it out a little bit more. Okay? It's all right. It's okay. You are loved. All right? That was not in my notes. <laughs> and we'll probably put first service up on the web <laughs> as well. But I love you guys, seriously. You are thinkers. I do mean that, seriously. You are thinkers. There's a unique dynamic. Um, but you can let it fly as well. They worship saying theological truths. Let me just read this. Verse 16. And the 24 elders, uh, they join in. 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces, worship God saying this. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. That is really interesting. Couple things. Number one, this is a thanksgiving declaration. These are the 24 presbyteros who are, have small thrones around uh, the throne, and, and, and it's a thanksgiving statement. It's, we give you thanks, Lord. That's cool. They know something good has happened by the blowing of the seventh trumpet. We'll find out what that is as time goes. By the way, notice that they not only give a thankful declaration, uh, but they give a thankful declaration that the Lord is divinity, Lord God. They, they state who they're talking to. Uh, you are the Lord God. And notice that their, their thankful declaration also declares his might and his power. Lord God Almighty. This isn't Jesus, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. Uh, this is, uh, we give you thanks, Lord God Almighty. And then the next, who is and who was. It declares his eternality. Who, who is and who was but there's something missing there. Oftentimes that statement in the scripture is followed by, and who is to come? It's not here. Why might that be? Some good theologians think it's because the end has now come. 
And others, I think more towards a proleptic verb, that's just me, I think towards that, they're realizing it. It's this idea, he's come, so it's, we're, we're, we're kind of, it, it's soon, it's like right on the verge of coming. Isn't that cool, by the way? Listen, uh, the reason I bring these details up is these beings are theologically strong. They are getting the picture. We don't need to say who is to come anymore. <laughs> because he is. And he was. Very cool. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Why are they giving thanks? Because the Lord God Almighty is reigning. He always has. But but in the end time-like reigning. We'll learn more about that as we go. We're just playing the pieces out. Remember, we're not putting the fuselage together. Verse 18, they go on. The nations raged, but your wrath came. This is huge. The nations raged. Uh, This term comes out of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2 says this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Listen to this. The kings of the earth, it says in verse two, set themselves. Got the idea? Set. Concrete sets. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You see, the nations raged. Uh, It's a defiant rage. It's a defiant rage by the nations. In other words, they have put themselves like concrete setting and they have set themselves harder than ever before against the Lord. And you need to see this as we flow out in the rest of the book. Listen, we oftentimes get so caught up in circumstances. That's what Americans tend to do. We get so in love with our circumstances and forget about the heart reality of what's going on. But know this and this. As we go through the rest of the book of Revelation, there's all kinds of circumstances that are going on, but you have to understand what's going on in the heart of the people. People are setting their heart against the Lord. And by the way, this is the entire battle of the heart for anybody now. There are two choices on the shelf. Love God or love self. And what's really going on even today, we're seeing more and more, frankly, in our own nation to where we are setting ourselves against biblical principles. We are embracing more and more what we want to do. And here we see this rage. But then it says in it, uh, but your wrath came. It's sad that I need to explain wrath here because I say it's sad because oftentimes people uh, understand this and I understand why. They understand wrath uh, uh, from a sin context in a home if you have had a wrathful parent. I'm talking about one who is just like blows up and just moment by moment, you just, it's not, it's Ephesians 6, 4, just exasperation. Moment blow up. That's not what this is talking about. It is not talking about that momentary rage of someone that is just like out of control, out about themselves, and it's just like, rah, 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 rah. It's not talking about that kind of wrath from the Lord. The wrath from the Lord here is actually referring to a settled disposition. 
It's not this out of controlledness. It's this idea that the nations have been raging. They have been putting themselves, setting themselves against God, continuing to do so, and the Lord in his grace and mercy, not wishing that any would perish. Why does time keep going on? So that more would be able to come to know him. But there is going to be coming a time where the Lord is going to be settled in his disposition against the wrath or against the rage that mankind is expressing against him, and he's going to be going, that's it. It's done. It's not a blow his top. It's just a reality of it's done. Settled disposition. And the Lord is going to rightly and righteously and in all holiness and in exact perfection deal out his settled dispositional wrath. None of that makes sense to us, does it? We live in such a sin-cursed world, we cannot think that wrath can be done with pure justice and pure holiness and pure righteousness because the truth of the matter is none of us can do that. But the Lord will. The nations raged, but your wrath came. This is what the, the 24 elders are realizing and are declaring in a doxological way into the Lord. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And then we have a number of ands here. In the flow of the text. And the time for the dead to be judged. First thing we coming out of God's wrath movement action is a judging. By the way, it's interesting. It says not the time for the dead who are unsaved. It's just saying the time for those who are dead to be judged. What does that mean? I'm just laying out pieces right now. We'll put the fuselage together as time moves along. Am I irritating you? I hope not. But we have this idea, just keep it in mind, that some kind of judging is taking place. And the time for the dead to be judged. And then there's a time for rewarding. I like that. And for rewarding your servants. The word is doulos. We've talked about this a number of times here. Servants is kind of a, a nice, uh, canned, uh, condensed way of really saying uh, you're slaves. Your loving, serving slaves uh, are going to be rewarded. And then it lays them out here. It says, the prophets and the saints and, and those who fear your name, both great and small. A couple things with this rewarding. And again, I'm not going to fill it all in here. We're going to let the text unfold over the coming weeks and months that we're here in Revelation. But this term prophets and saints, I think this is most likely referring to a common term that's used throughout Scripture, referring back to not prophets of the Bible and saints, those who are in Christ today, but it's kind of together a term that's referring to biblical times, especially Old Testament times, I think, and I state it that way, I think it's referring, first of all, there's going to be a rewarding of, of the Lord's prophets, Old Testament prophets, and yes, New Testament prophets. And boy, I hope so, because those dudes, wow, they put up a lot and served the Lord in faithfulness. I think the next thing has more to do with us and those who fear your name. Those who fear your name, fear. It's not those who are scared to death and cringe and run from, but it's that fear idea of the awe. It's the wow. Those who fear the Lord. Scriptures talk about um, um, end of Ecclesiastes. That's the end of the story. Fear the Lord. Know who he is. 
It's an adopted child living under the strong authority and submission of an absolutely perfect, loving father. Those who fear your name, do you fear the Lord in that kind of way? I mean, does the Lord have your attention? Seriously. Does the Lord change how you do your life? Does the Lord change how you think about your life? Is the Lord driving you? Or is he just another tag-on item on the shelf of religiosity? Listen, the Lord is so not about being a tag-on. The Lord is about having ones born in sin, separated from him, who repent and come to him and receive him as their savior, drive the stake in the ground and become an adopted child of God and then show it with their lives. That's what's talking about here. Do you know him that way? I think I do. Listen, I think is not a good place to be. Because one of the things we're seeing out of Revelation is being on God's team is a really cool thing. You want to know that you're there. Not being on God's team is not a good thing. And I lovingly just say, you don't want to be there. Do you know Christ? Do you know that you know that you know? And if you're not sure, we would love to talk with you or someone who brought you here, someone you know from here. Sit down, settle the matter. Settle the matter. Judging, rewarding. By the way, before I kind of almost get to the end here, it says both great and small. That's encouraging. For rewarding, both great and small. <laughs> so sometimes we are. I mean, I'm just a regular guy. You're regular people. And sometimes it is like, man, that dude, that dude's going to really get the rewards. I mean, man. Publicly known and this and that. Whoa, dude. I just feel like a small person. Do you feel like a small person? I'm just being totally transparent with you. Just a regular guy. We're regular people. And I kind of in the whole of it all, like when the billions and billions of people who know Christ as their Savior come before him, it's like, I'm small dude. Small dude. And yet know this. The rewarding is of the great and deserved. And of the small and rightly deserved. Not because of what they did, but because of who God is. And sometimes if you're in that place where you're like, I'm just like a little, no, know this. Everything that's being talked about here includes you. Great and small. By the way, I'm gonna throw out a question for you to consider. In the flow of the grammar of this statement and what the presbyteros are saying here, is it saying great and small just to those who are being rewarded? Or is the great and small also in reference to the prior statement about those who are being judged? I'm still not sure. But if it is, and I'm inclined to think that it has tied to it, if it is, it means this. It means we think that Hitler, Stalin, all the ISIS baloney going on in our world today, all those great acts of wickedness and those wicked, great, wickedly people, they're going to get it. But the small people, but hold on. Person without Christ, the person without Christ, 
is wicked before the Lord. Because they do not have Christ covering their sin. And I lovingly say, great or small, if you are without Christ, you're in trouble. And I don't want you to be in trouble. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let's finish it. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. By the way, I just realized I forgot that in the first service. Destroying the destroyers of the earth. Does this not sound like the perfect, if you do not recycle, you are going to hell verse? <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> oh, that is horrible hermeneutics. That is horrible. Not what it means. I just don't have the time, but I'll just say this. That term destroyers of the earth has more to do not only with the the earth itself, but just has to do with the whole idea of what God has made. Those who destroy what the Lord has made, um, God's wrath is coming. Those, especially as we'll see here, I think this is going to unfold as we go through Revelation. I think this is especially referring to the a reference to Babylon and the beast and the false prophet and the great prostitute and Satan himself. They are going to be destroyed. They are going to be destroyed. Yes, they are. And we're to be thrilled about that because of the righteousness of the Lord is to shine. Let's finish it with this. Um, the, the roar brings a doxological response and a doxological response, I think this is really special, just hold this near to your heart, brings another God reveal. Let's just read verse 19. Then. Then means in light of what just took place. Then, after these two doxological statements of doxology glory given unto the Lord, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. There's a number of things here we could talk about. It's interesting here, and it's in heaven and with the ark and the temple and all that. And I think much of this is setting up for what we're about to read. Remember, there were not chapter breaks. Everything just kept moving. I think this is intro into the next thing that's coming in here. But, but in this, I just want to say this. Note this, and I only note this because you've seen it a number of times now. When God acts and God's being responds, God responds with more revealing of himself. I'm really not trying to grab something out of the text that isn't there, but we're seeing a pattern in Revelation. When the Lord acts, when the Lord does something, showing himself to John as a resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, with the Father on the throne, with the seal in his right hand, with the, the Lord, with, with the Lion of the tribe of the Judah, who is the Lamb, coming and taking, and all these kinds of... Every time we see the Lord acting, the Lord revealing himself, and we see God's people, God's beings responding in, in worship and glory with grand theology behind all of that, the Lord just seems to have this tendency where it's like, I'm going to show you more. And don't you want to know more? I mean, I want to know more of who the Lord is. Blow me away with more, Lord. But I note it this way. The Lord seems to have a tendency to show more of himself when people are living in, responding in, in the giving of doxology unto him. When we see his glory, he reveals more of his glory. Are you seeing the Lord at work 
Are you in your life, whatever's going on, are you aware that in the great times and in the hard times, in the conflict and in the wonderful joyous times, do you realize that the Lord is sovereignly at work in your life, around your life, through your life? Are you in tune to that? I'm not even asking, do you know exactly what the Lord is doing? Do you know this? He is shaping you to be conformed to be more like Jesus Christ every moment of every day. Hey, your work matters. What happens in your home matters. Your relationship matters. The Lord is aware, the Lord is at work, and the Lord wants us to respond corporately, if you will, appropriately and theologically. Are you responding more like Revelation 11, or are you responding more like Mark chapter 4? Remember Mark chapter 4? The disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, the storm hits. They're scared to death, they think they're going to die. Jesus is asleep in the boat, and they come over to him, and they say to him, don't you care? Um, Bad theology. Understandable. And I've done it, and you've done it, but it's bad theology. He does care. He is at work. And he wants you to respond for his glory. When you respond for his glory, the Lord just has this way of showing more of himself. I'm just going to leave it there. Lord, in this room today, we likely have some folks who are just in some hurting times of life and some aching times of life, maybe some sad, disheartening times of life and some confusing times of life and some relationship stress times of life. Lord, I would just pray that kind of this pause on these few verses here of what's happening in heaven would give them insight and hope and help. Lord, the things happening on here on earth are tied to heaven. And the reality is the things that are happening in our life, the Lord knows exactly what's going on. And one, Lord, I would pray that we would have Eyes more aware that you're at work. So Lord, I pray for that person in the hard time of life right now. That in the pain of it, that they would understand there is a God who loves them. And it was seeking to use these circumstances of life to draw them closer to you. And God, I would pray that you would give them the power and the ability and the theology to respond to you in praise and glory, not only with their words, not only with their song, but with how they then respond. And knowing that When we give you glory and when we respond in a way that gives you glory, oh, you take it in. 
<laughs> and you don't just take it in, but you even in it all, you, you, you just have this way of revealing more of yourself. So God, I pray we'd reveal more of yourself. And Lord, as we close, I would ask, Lord, that um, corporately, we would full-hearted sing this song in full tune with the words, the theology on the screen. And that we would sing them with a full heart. That we would sing them with minds fully engaged into the reality of hail, Redeemer, hail. And that God, even in our physicality, that we would just be a people, not as a show, oh God, may we never be that, but just as a reality of the response of who we are, Lord. Oh God, move us, shape us, take us. Show us more of you, Lord. Show us more of you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.